Hey, welcome back to our session. This is part two of our summary, our synopsis of peripartum cardiomyopathy from the January 2019 edition of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Now, in this session, we're going to start off with our clinical investigation or our workup, and then we'll get into management and prognosis. Now, in terms of workup, although there are no diagnostic biomarkers for peripartum cardiomyopathy, measurement of natriuretic peptides have been used to assist in the diagnosis. Now, specifically, we're talking about B-type natriuretic peptide or BNP. There is a catch, though, to using BMP. For example, a slight elevation in BMP has been seen within 48 hours within the postpartum period. Additionally, BMP levels can also be mildly elevated in patients with severe preeclampsia. So although these levels are abnormally elevated in women with peripartum cardiomyopathy, there is still no specific threshold that's established for the diagnosis. As part of the standard workup for peripartum cardiomyopathy, remember that assessment of liver, kidney, and thyroid function is recommended, along with an evaluation for anemia and sepsis. Proteinuria should also be quantified. A 12-lead EKG and chest X-ray are also standard. The chest X-ray usually discloses cardiomegaly, usually with pulmonary congestion, and pleural effusions. As we discussed in Part 1, remember that ECHO remains the gold standard for confirmation of diagnosis and should be obtained as early as possible. Finally, although once recommended in the past, currently there is no role for routine endomyocardial biopsy. As for management, although the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy most frequently happens postpartum, for women diagnosed before delivery, the timing of delivery will depend on several factors. Chief among those includes gestational age and, of course, the clinical severity of the condition. When peripartum cardiomyopathy occurs during pregnancy, it does so almost always in the last month. Therefore, in most cases, there is little fetal benefit to continue the pregnancy. Vaginal delivery is still preferable in a stable patient. Some recommend forceps or vacuum-assisted delivery to decrease the risk of negative effects from the Valsalva maneuver. However, if there is evidence of severe maternal compromise or obstetric reasons are identified, then cesarean delivery, of course, could be prudent. Use of oxytocin follows the usual guidelines and does not require further dilution, and mag sulfate prophylaxis is commonly given as a result of concomitant preeclampsia. So, remember that fluid status must be carefully monitored. Finally, some recommend invasive hemodynamic monitoring during labor and delivery, but this is not universally accepted. In terms of intrapartum pain control, labor epidural analgesia is ideal and is induced slowly in the event of a fixed cardiac output. All right, next, let's cover medical therapy of the condition. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The standard management of peripartum cardiomyopathy is based on the treatment of systolic heart failure. Treatment is focused on controlling symptoms, repressing neurohormonal responses, and preventing long-term sequelae like thromboembolic disease and arrhythmias. All right, so here's your clinical pearl angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers function to decrease afterload and are one of the cornerstone treatment options for peripartum cardiomyopathy in the postpartum woman. Remember, however, that because of their teratogenic effects, they are avoided during pregnancy and alternatives like hydralazine or nitrates may be used for their vasodilatory effects. Other group of medications include calcium channel blockers. Finally, beta-blocking agents have been shown to reduce mortality in these patients. Currently, the recommendation is to continue ACE inhibitors and beta-blockers for at least one year after resolution of symptoms and improvement in left ventricular function. What about digoxin? Well, treatment with digoxin is currently debated. Its primary utility seems to be in women with symptoms that are refractory to standard therapy with ACE inhibitors, beta-blockers, and diuretics. Another word about thromboembolic prophylaxis. Given the high risk of thromboembolism, it is prudent to provide anticoagulation in prophylactic dosages during pregnancy and the immediate postpartum period when peripartum cardiomyopathy is diagnosed. Lastly, for patients with severe depression of ventricular dysfunction, intra-aortic balloon pumps, ventricular assist devices, and even extracorporeal membrane oxygenation have all been used pending recovery of function as a bridge to cardiac transplantation. Actually, about 5% of cardiac transplants in women in the U.S. are for peripartum cardiomyopathy. It's important to make a statement about the role of prolactin, once again, on this condition. Because of the central role that prolactin probably has in the pathogenesis of peripartum cardiomyopathy, some empirically recommend against breastfeeding, although there's not a lot of data to substantiate that recommendation. For this reason, the prolactin-inhibiting agent bromocryptine has been given to women with pericardium cardiomyopathy in an attempt to mitigate ventricular damage. But once again, it's important to make this clinical pearl that clinical evidence for a beneficial effect of the curtailment or stopping of breastfeeding is still lacking. Nonetheless, once again, there is a recommendation against breastfeeding, which is hard to say, in women with this condition. Now, regarding contraception after delivery, the U.S. medical eligibility criteria first put out by the World Health Organization has a guideline for peripartum cardiomyopathy. It lists the preferred methods of birth control as the copper or levonorgestrel-releasing IUD, the eternorgestrel implant, which is Nexplanon, 
Depo-Provera, and progestin-only pills. Here's another clinical pearl. The guidelines advise against the use of combined estrogen and progestin oral contraceptives given the increased risk of fluid retention and the possible induction of cardiac arrhythmias. As we wrap up the podcast, a quick word about follow-up and prognosis. Repeat echo is routinely recommended at least six months after pregnancy to evaluate for ventricular function. Now, once there's recovery, annual echo is performed. Pre-pregnancy, baseline measurements of B and P levels is recommended because they will be followed serially throughout each subsequent pregnancy. The risk for recurrence of the condition in subsequent gestations is actually based on retrospective data. Now, in a recent study from the Mayo Clinic, 25 women with peripartum cardiomyopathy, of which 24 had recovered ventricular function, were followed through 33 live birth pregnancies. Although most of these women had a decline in left ventricular function, only 21% had recurrent peripartum cardiomyopathy. So that's reassuring. Importantly, all of the women recovered ventricular function after the pregnancy. Now, here's a clinical pearl and something of note. There was a high rate of breastfeeding in these women after their subsequent deliveries. So once again, this issue on prolactin is controversial, although some recommend avoidance of breastfeeding in this male follow-up study, breastfeeding didn't seem to affect long-term prognosis. Now, a quick word about prognosis. There is evidence that black women have an overall worse prognosis and severity of the condition compared to other women. So, because of this factor, some recommend tighter surveillance postpartum in black patients. Well, that wraps up a review covering part two of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Once again, the source for this podcast was a January 2019 edition of Obstetrics and Gynecology with the CME article by the chief author, F. Gary Cunningham. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.